either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Oh, what a weekend at the movies. It feels like Christmas. <laughs> the excitement. Man, it's finally here. It's Barbenheimer weekend. Of course, we'll talk about those and a few more. Welcome in. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. This is, I, I can't remember a weekend at the movies in years. I mean, we stopped by, we had already seen the movies, but we stopped by a couple of our local theaters last night mm-hmm. here in Columbus, Ohio. On a Thursday night, it was buzzing oh, it, like yeah. a... Bedlam. It was Bedlam, and it was awesome. It was, it it was, was great. just great. People were dressed up, not just as Barbie. I saw some Oppenheimers. Oh, yeah. And I saw some Barbenheimers. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a number of people who had on like Barbie t-shirts or yeah. like, you know, pink, uh, you know, uh, feathery sort of shirts and with lab coats mm-hmm. on top. I loved it. Loved it. And people were, some of the theaters were doing themes, you know, and giveaways and the ones that have restaurants inside, you know, themed drinks and, and menus. It's just fantastic. Even if we didn't like these movies, and we do. Oh, we loved them. Even if we didn't like them, I would be so joyous for getting the people back in the theaters yes, and agreed. celebrating the movies. And this thing just took off. It went viral. The whole Bar- Barbenheimer. I love it. And uh, just the fact that people are, are excited about these movies is fantastic. And it, it's just great to have this because, I mean, even before, of course, you're going to say before the pandemic, but I mean, even years before that. Years. I years. don't remember. No. Even on a Thursday night. I know. Sold out sold shows. Sold out. Not just for one movie, but two. Yeah. It's, and there's a there's a 70 millimeter print of uh, Oppenheimer at the Gateway Film Center here in Columbus. And they are sold out this week. They're already sold out next weekend, all yeah. their 70 millimeter yeah. um, screenings. Just. Which is, so we've seen it now on IMAX. Mm-hmm. And. And I, uh, we will get to the 70 oh, millimeter yes. before it's gone because we also we saw they they got the uh, Dunkirk 70 millimeter they got the Tenet 70 millimeter I mean they get a lot of actually they do a lot of but they they do all of the uh, Nolan films in 70 and we haven't missed one yet yeah yeah so let's dig in let's start with Barbie suffering a crisis that leads her to question her world and her existence it's Greta Gerwig's Barbie. <laughs> Impossible. If this got out, this could mean extremely weird things for our world. This would be catastrophic! We haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. Oh. No one rests until this doll is back in a box. Even if nobody else sings along. Humans only have one ending. Get that Barbie! Ideas live forever. No, I won't let you do just one appendectomy. But I'm a man. But not a doctor. Can I talk to a doctor? You are talking to a doctor. Can I need a clicky pen? No. A sharp thing? No. There he is. Doctor! Somebody get security. It's Bobby Boots if you're still in doubt. And we say Greta Gerwig. That's that's one of the main things that we've been talking about for a while now, talking about this movie, because as soon as it was announced... Some people, what, Barbie making a movie yeah. about Barbie? But as soon as you find out who's doing it, okay, I'm in. Because we have said that about Greta Gerwig. Of course, Lady Bird was a tremendous debut. And then 
she did Little Women, which at the time, do we need another Little Women adaptation? And we found out that, yes, we did. Yes, we did. Because what she did with it. So that took all question away about whether she'd be able to do something new and fresh and worthwhile with the toy, the the story, a story about a toy Barbie. And she certainly does. And it's it's so smart and it's fun and it's subversive. You want to say it's subversive? I mean, it's got a, a message that comes hard, but it's certainly one that works perfectly with this story and, and this toy. And of course, you can speak this speak to this better than I can growing up with the toys. I had Barbies, you know, I, uh, I had one that I liked very much uh, that had roller skates uh, and I outgrew them pretty young and uh, learned quickly. I have a very complicated, mostly contemptuous relationship with this doll. And if anybody else had made the movie, I, I probably would have just made you cover it. I probably just wouldn't have gone. <laughs> uh, and um, But I, I, I we both did. We had high expectations of the film because of Greta Gerwig. And, you know, one of the things I think I knew right away from Lady Bird, because so often coming-of-age tales, you know, there has to be some angst and there has to be some villainy. You know, there's got to be, like, somebody's pitted against somebody else. That movie was so forgiving, not only of sort of everybody who stood in the the youngster's way, but also of the the protagonist. It was such a non-cynical, there was no cynicism in that film, but still it was incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's, I think, what has helped her to just stand apart as a filmmaker is that there's 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 it's smart. It's not pretending the world is not the way it is. But at the same time, there's no there's no hate. It's very there's nothing cynical. And that is what makes that specifically is what makes this movie work. Yeah. And she co-writes with Noah Baumbach. And I think what's fascinating about it and what's what's one of the reasons it's so smart is because there are, there are times in the script where you might, in another movie or another context or setting, you might accuse her of speechifying. But because of the context yes. that she set it in with these characters and these dolls, it's totally fine. It, it feels right. Because, as, as I said in the synopsis, it's about Barbie. The, there are many Barbies. But Margot Robbie plays the what they call the stereotypical Barbie. Yes, she uh, says, when you think of Barbie, I'm the one you think of. <laughs> and she has an existential crisis. That's, basically, it begins with her feet. Uh, there, she has flat feet all of a sudden, mm-hmm. even when she takes her shoes off. And, you know, with Barbie, that doesn't happen. No. The feet stay up. So she has to go to the real world. She's sent by Weird Barbie, played perfectly by Kate McKinnon, to the real world to sort it out and who tags along with her to the real world but Ken Ryan Gosling who's perfect and then they are immediately they're they're found out by the Mattel honchos led by Will Ferrell and they've got to be captured and sent back well, to, at least Barbie, Barbie does, world. because yeah. <laughs> Ken is just not anything anybody's worried about. That's right, ever. he just can't, That's and right. he has the song that tells us that. <laughs> Ryan, these those two are perfect. Ryan Gosling, as you've been mentioning, steals scene after scene. He's such a funny, we've known he's such a, a, a gifted comedic actor yes. with his comic timing, and he's perfect for this. Margot Robbie is perfect for this. The, the cast, uh, as is the next movie we're going to talk about, is littered with talent, even in small roles. Yes. As various Barbies and various Kens. <laughs> and um, the conflict comes into play that once simple Ken gets a taste of the real world, he likes it for a very simple reason. Yeah. Um, it, and it's, it's a great scene, and I don't want to give anything away, but when the two of them get to the real world, quite suddenly, the way that she's perceived is different from the way she's perceived back in, in Barbie land. 
And the way he's perceived as just Ken, quite different from the way he's perceived back in Barbie Land. Quite different. And, and I don't think, I do, I think we want to not give anything away. This movie mm-hmm. is so joyous, but it it's also incredibly smart. I honestly it would not surprise me at all to see this screen this to see this screenplay get nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. I agree because you take something like how how are we going to make the story of a toy and make it so such a piece of social commentary that's so entertaining. There's music, there's dancing. It's not a full-on musical. But there's it's it's as a burst of color and joy and something that I agree with you. We're not going to spoil, and something that people not only people should see. It's PG thirteen, but we've had a few people ask us here in the last few days about kids. Yes, they not only can they see it, they should see it. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I I just really do. It speaks to um, it speaks to women. Uh, oh, it's, you know, clearly, yeah. it, it 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 does. But I I think I don't think it's hard to imagine a child. Not enjoying it. It's PG thirteen, so like the littlest kids, it might be bored. Yeah. But I mean, it's so colorful. It's so funny. It's yeah. so such a romp. It's hard to imagine. But it. But the story is is for. I'm not gonna say for adults, but it's not a kids movie. Right. The uh, the themes are some of the themes depending on how young the kids are. They're they're gonna go over their heads. Right. But the, I think they'll still enjoy it. Also, any serious m- movie fans, there are a lot of winks and nods to movies. In this movie, right from the beginning, oh, yes. which I from the loved. opening, yeah, it was from a brilliant the, opening. Now the young couple next to me, I'm not sure they got it. Maybe they weren't aware of this <laughs> classic movie that the opening of Barbie sends up. But I loved it, and th- there's some more nods throughout the movie. So. Well, and then also as it is laugh out loud funny to the degree that in fact I laughed out loud so loud and so long at one of the bits the lady sitting next to me got concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another gag about movies. Yes. Uh, so, so yeah, there's just so so much to like here. It's it like we keep saying it's it's smart, it's clever, it's fun, it's joyous, and it has a message that it is not shy about imparting. And no. I and I love that about it because the fact that it's not shy works perfectly with the setting of this film. It does. It yeah. wouldn't feel right no, if they genius. tried to soft pedal it. No. Because these these two worlds and the people in one world don't understand so they have to just say out say plain mm-hmm. plain and simple what they're thinking and why this doesn't jive with what they've known so it's perfect it's a perfect way to structure it and it just comes out as a rousing rousing success one of two this weekend so uh barbie highly recommended and let's go to uh, part two of the barbenheimer experience this is writer-director Christopher Nolan telling the story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. It is Oppenheimer. The world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger bomb. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Truman needs to know what's next. Two, what's next? One. 
both of these films are experiences. Yes. They are experiences. This one is certainly an experience that will, as I said in my written review, it leaves you feeling kind of drained after three hours. It's three hours, but thankful for it. Yeah. What it what it puts you through, what it takes you through. It is such, such um, an impeccably crafted story. Uh, Christopher Nolan writes the script based on two source books about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and it's it's a character study. It's a history lesson. It's a it's a mystery thriller. It's a deconstruction of history and of the the people who who run things and giving power to certain people and blind faith in those people and 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 hubris and envy and there's so much going into this story and it's such an important story such a incredible moment in the history of not only of America but of humankind yeah and what has happened since then that it's such such an important story and I think most people of of, of our age we are aware of this person. But yeah. boy, this dives into things that that I didn't know, and he's oh, certainly no. he's certainly a person worth knowing more about. And it's it's one of those that gives you a great overview and some great details, but also invites you to dig further and look further about this man and this uh, this piece of history. And it's led by I mean the cast. We talked about the the large cast about Barbie. This one, holy crap. Oh, my God. The people in this movie, even in small roles, but it's led at the top with Killian Murphy, who is just, I don't know if I can find the right superlative. He is mesmerizing from start to finish. He really is. You know, and and it's a movie that does, it takes you through his whole life, kind of back and forth and back and forth in certain ways, never in a disjointed way, but you, it gives, I like that it does it that way because it gives you a better sense of how how stunning his performance is because when you jump back in time a little bit you know before he's very haunted and you know you can just see how i can't imagine what murphy put himself through yeah it had to be so intense because he is he's he's a hypnotic presence he is you know and and in a way that's um that seems very true to what I, i mean to who oppenheimer was i mean he you know, uh, little quotes from him over the years. The things he said seem so odd and so phantom-like. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a fascinating, understated, I think, performance. Well, even before he's haunted by what he hath wrought, yes. he's, it seems like he's he's haunted Murphy and Nolan Crafton as a man, haunted by really the inability to turn his mind off. Yeah. He's just so intellectually curious. He just couldn't stop himself, and he came off as standoffish, to, to people, and, and he alienated people that he didn't really care about alienated because maybe they weren't up to his intellectual level. Right. He's just, this is him. you got to come along and, and keep up. And it's it, fascinating. And, yeah. and and Murphy does that not not only with the dialogue but with his body language yeah. and yeah. his eyes. He's got those piercing eyes. Uh, so the performance is incredible at the top. And it would take us the rest of the podcast to run down the the cast of people, but also at the top you've got Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh and Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr. Downey Jr. as good as I've ever seen yeah, him. Yeah. I might expect another a nomination for him as well. He plays Matt Damon is great Matt as well. Matt Damon is great as Leslie Groves, the uh, general who brought Oppenheimer onto the project, handpicked him really. Uh, but yeah, Robert Downey Jr. plays uh, Louis Straws, who was a they had a very very contemptuous relationship um he was on the straws was on the atomic energy commission 
uh, during this time. And I don't want to spoil too much here right, for right. people that don't know the history, but their relationship is very important to this film, especially in the final third. Yeah. As it becomes, it, it's at times so tense. It's crafted the the technical details, the cinematography, the score, the sound design. Oh my God! I mean, gorgeous. see this on IMAX. See it if you're lucky enough, as we are, to have a 70 millimeter screen around. See that. I mean, the scene alone where they finally work up to the successful test, the first successful test of the bomb. I think the sound designer needs an Oscar nomination just for that yeah, alone. It, it is, was incredible. It really, really was. It and was, I want to talk for a second about Emily Blunt because, yeah. you know, it's the character of the, you know, of the, the poor wife, you know, being left behind kind of situation. Right. And it would be so easy for that to just be one of those characters. But at the same time, the the actual character herself is very difficult to like Mm -hmm. and I love that I love that they didn't shy away from that and I loved Emily Blunt's performance now that's that's not uncommon because she's just wonderful in everything but she she's so strong in this movie and the two of them together have a fascinating type of chemistry they do they do and as Christopher Nolan does he doesn't shy away from the close-ups and this cast doesn't shy away from them either. I mean, no. some of these close-ups just peer into their souls, yes. including Emily Blunt, especially yeah. at the end, oh, yeah. which is a great shot. But, um, yeah, it's it's such an engrossing story. I mean, the, everything about the film, and the, I didn't even mention the production design, it just engrosses you in this slice of history, these fascinating characters, and what's going on as they race to come up with this weapon before the Nazis do, and then what happens after and into the the psyche of a, of a haunted man and what his what he may have, as I think the line is, genius doesn't guarantee wisdom. Mm-hmm. There are so many great lines there like that. There are a lot of great lines. Yeah. You don't get to commit the sin and then ask us all to feel sorry for you. Exactly. There's so, there's so many deep, you know, heavy moral ambiguities and... And how could he have not seen this coming? And he was putting faith in something that uh, once it was invented was was out of his hands. And then what they did to him after, yeah. And their which is which is how the film is based. Really, the Nolan anchors it in a in a small here. I was call it a hearing, an interrogation mm-hmm. that uh, Oppenheimer went through at the uh, at the hands of a security board from the Atomic Energy Commission as they were digging years after the war as they were digging into his associations and his views uh, to try to basically discredit him and a, a bit of character assassination so that's what the what the final third of the film really digs into and gets into people who were behind that and that is very tense as well it really very is tense yeah. and thrilling it's just an overall incredible cinematic experience and Without going too much into it, people have talked in these last few weeks about this pairing of these two movies, Barbie and Oppenheimer. And yes, they are tonally, tonally different, because I wouldn't call this movie joyous at all. No, oh no. But you bring up a good point, and I don't know how much you want to say about it, that they are thematically thematically quite similar. similar. Quite similar, yes, they are. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things that make them similar, like that they ha- they is two of the greatest filmmakers working today, and that they're both working top of their game. But no, there there is an underlying theme that that not only is similar between the two films, but is incredibly relevant today. Although, to be honest with you, it is probably always incredibly relevant. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I do think 
and people are surprised to hear that. But I do think for people who have the whole Oppenheimer or Barbenheimer experience this weekend, they'll come away with the same thought, which is basically that when you put all the power of the world into the hands of a very small number of men, the world ends. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's funny, going back to Barbie for a minute, people that may be surprised at, at the feminist message that, that Gerwig has structured the film around, I guess forget about what the doll, I mean, the doll had a lot of, as I, as, if I'm remembering it right, the doll had women doing a lot of things as a doll, as a toy that women really weren't doing when it was a toy. You know what I think, one of the things that I, I really applaud her for is the way that she's able to tackle the many different sides, which is really the point of the film, you know, and, and uh, yeah, she, she do, they do. Barbie, she was the president, and she, you know, you can get a Barbie. Astronaut. Who, an astronaut. Yeah. And, but at the same time, all of the people who were determining what she looked like and what she wore and what they were selling, all men. It was a board roll of men. So yeah. while at, this, at the one time they're saying, we really want to encourage little girls to think big that they can grow up to do this, as long as they are physically beyond perfect, you know? And that's really what I think is at the heart of the movie. You look at Barbie, and the tagline is, if you love Barbie, this is the movie for you. If you hate Barbie, this is the movie for you. Barbie comes under a lot, under a lot of fire for for creating unrealistic physical expectations for women. And the, at one point in the film, it's like, so what is a woman supposed to be? Because if you're Barbie, which is the image of perfection, you're still not doing it right. How do you do it right? That's the conflict it, that, that drives this film. And mm-hmm. I think she, she's very nuanced. She looks at it from a lot of different angles and comes up with just like, you know, one at one point, the, the young girl, the tween, she goes, women hate women. Men hate women. It's the one thing we all have in common. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, which is just another gem. The movie is full of really brilliant writing. But uh, I think that that the core message is is one of the reasons why this film is going to resonate so yeah. much. I mean, it, it did with me to a degree that I was, it, even though I had high expectations, I was surprised. Yeah, we got off the track. We just start, went back and started talking about Barbie. But that's to say that they are more closely linked than, than you might think. And to not be, for anybody that might be inclined to, to be surprised about the message of a film about a Barbie toy. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't be. Also, I was schooled on some of the stuff. They really use actual dolls and actual information about some of the other Barbie dolls. I didn't realize that they made. Yeah. I didn't know they had a pregnant Barbie. Yes. Or no, one, I didn't either. Or Midge. one whose chest got bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know any of this. So it really is. You might it's, learn it's also, something. It's also a history lesson in, <laughs> yeah, as right. is Oppenheimer. <laughs> so they're basically both the same movie. <laughs> they're not, but man, we're just we're so happy that it's it's such a that it's become such an event. But as we said, that they're both so much worth seeing, especially on the big screen. So see them both: Barbie, Oppenheimer, Barbenheimer. Let's go to a documentary next. This is based on the journey of the Negro Baseball League, and it's called The League. Negro League Baseball was so popular that black churches would move their service time up an hour so fans could go to the game. If you know anything about the black church, you'll mess with service time. There were African-American professional ball players in the 19th century. But segregation starts to tighten its hold. Well, what do you do? We can do this on our own. Man, they didn't care about making no history. They just wanted to play ball. 
but the pride, the passion, the courage in the face of adversity. That's the real story. Well, I think we might have mentioned this last week because we talked about a new documentary last week called Black Ice, mm-hmm. which is about the uh, colored hockey league, and which is a lot less well-known, I think, than the Negro Leagues in baseball. But here we have a, a great documentary about the uh, Negro League, and it's by Oscar-nominated documentarian director Sam Pollard. He was Oscar-nominated for Four Little Girls mm-hmm. years ago, but he's also done, here. Rec- more recently, he did MLK FBI, mm-hmm. which we liked a lot, Mr. Soul, yes. which we liked a lot, good yeah. stuff. Well, here, it's it's a, a great piece of history, especially, I mean, if you're baseball fans as, as we are, it's a no-brainer. Yes. Um, you, you have fantastic, fantastic history and archival footage and interviews, uh, but if you're just, if you want to know more about the subject and about how the league was so such a pivotal part of the history of not just the game but of the country and the and the symbiotic relationship that developed between the league and movements of the day geographical socio-political movements of the day the push and pull about how things were affected and the the effect on on towns and specifically the the black economies in towns that had these franchises it's fascinating it's a fascinating deconstruction of the people that were involved in in uh, making the league the visionaries uh, the great players who played it and made it their own and much like we we talked about with black ice they played it in a different way a much more athletic fast-paced version of baseball that the white writers of the day noticed started started writing about and then you started seeing it come in to the white baseball leagues and then and then some other stories uh, some other information that you might not be aware of of things that happened after integration specifically with Jackie Robinson in the National League and Larry Doby in the American League just just a, a wealth of information by a very very esteemed and acclaimed and and talented uh, documentarian, very much worth seeing, not just for sports fans, maybe especially for sports fans, because it's, <laughs> it's another great one. Uh, but uh, this is available in select theaters mm-hmm. and uh, on VOD. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, big recommendation for The League. It is available now. Back to theaters for an international film drama. Amanda, 24, lives mostly isolated and has never had any friends, even if it's the thing she wants the most. Amanda chooses as her new mission to convince her childhood friend that they are still best friends. This is called Amanda. È proprio questo l'inganno della borghesia, papà. È sopportabile, mamma. Non è colpa mia se siete cresciuti così. Lo so, Judy. Grazie tante. Well, that synopsis does not do this film justice, and neither does the label drama. Um, this is a dark comedy. I mean, dark, that's not really the right word for it. It's its borderline absurd. All right, IMDb, are you listening? Change that. <laughs> <laughs> it, what it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like if Yorgos Lanthimos made Napoleon Dynamite. Well, I think you can tell from the trailer that it's that it's like that yeah. and less of a drama. So yeah. yeah. So yeah, I don't know who's uh, who's writing this, but very much so. You get that just from the trailer. Yeah. And Amanda is played by Benedetta Porcaroli and I you know, I, I can't tell you how important the her choices, her acting choices are to this film because the character is profoundly narcissistic, is really incapable of even acknowledging another person's perspective or really (laughs) existence. She only sees, and she's just constantly, she's so oppressed by a world where at 25 she still doesn't have to have a job and she can just bunch up her parents. And 
And but there are two things about that that are so hilarious. One is that the people around her obviously are aware of this. She's been like this for as long as they've known her. And that's one of the things that makes the movie so funny is they're just sort of weary exasperation with this woman. And then the other thing is the performance, though, what she wants more than anything is human connection. But she can't figure out why she can't make it. Mm -hmm. And the performance is it and it. And it also lingers on close-ups on her face, and she's just she'll just stare at somebody, just desperate for something internal, something to click. You know, and in the age of since the rise of of social media and the internet revolution, we've seen that theme in a lot of films, mm-hmm. especially with a, this this generation. Yes, the the group that has grown up with this, and a lot of uh, theories about them being detached mm-hmm. socially right. because. They don't have to be if they're in front of the screen all day. And I, and I feel like this movie this movie minds that better than most. And um and, and but at the same time it puts it in a, a a world that's not quite like a fairy tale. It's not quite uh you know that unrealistic. But it certainly isn't real. It, 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 like Napoleon Dynamite. Uh-huh. You know there was a, a, enough reality to that <laughs> that you're like, where am I? And this that's how this one feels. Although it, it you know it's set in I mean it's set in a much it's in it's in Europe and they have money. I mean it's a much different situation. But at the same time it mines something quite similar. But the performances and then the uh, the whole ensemble just a bunch of weirdos in the best way. Do they have? Phone cords that are as long as Napoleon's over there? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> they do not. <laughs> this is a writer-director, Carolina Cavalli. I hope I pronounced that right. But So that gives you a little bit. I know there's a lot of people, not us, a lot of people who do not care for Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, that's that's, a that's you, crazy That's talk. a you problem. That's a you problem. But that might be a clue that if that is not your bag. Right. I mean, this, I mean, you know, Napoleon Dynamite is a much more upbeat, outright comedy. And this one kind of skates toward maybe even dog tooth. Right. Now, it doesn't go that far. It right. doesn't have the devastating cynicism that you're going to find in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. But it's it's definitely close. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. midway between the two, I'd say. <laughs> so we love that combination. If it sounds like uh, up your alley, check out Amanda. It is in theaters now. Let's uh, stay in theaters for a horror thriller. When Anya starts behaving like her fiance's recently deceased mother, Emmett must confront his deepest traumas to free his fiance from this bewildering possession. It's called Mother May I. You ever trip with somebody and they, they start acting like another person? Anya! Anya can't swim. What is happening? You tidy, you make the bed, you make me eggs, you make me bacon. Stop! I'm not going anywhere. Kyle Gallner is playing Emmett in this movie, and and we love him. We're big fans of his. You know, he was great in Smile. I think that's when a lot of people took notice. We loved him in Dinner in America last year, but he's always good. He's always good. And he's very good in this as well. Uh, you know, if you watch the trailer, you think to yourself, I know this story, right? It's like these, these, you know, this this guy and his fiance inherit this sprawling, although in this case, really gorgeous, isolated property. And they get there and, you know, something terrible happens. And in this case, it's that uh, it belonged to his deceased mother. And he thinks that she's possessing his his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes and it and there is something familiar about that story and about the structure of this. But it goes in such a 
odd places this movie does. The performances are great. Holland Roden plays Anya, and she has, you know, she has, I think, probably the, the for an actor, great challenge of creating two specific characters so that you know what she's gone from one to the yeah, other. Yeah. And she does so quite well. Neither one seems fake or forced. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she does a really great job of transforming from one to the next. It's, it's very impressive. And uh, the it's a beautiful film. It's really gorgeously shot uh, to make it seem, uh, you know, like an isolated property, but one that you would want to stay in, uh, as opposed to that sort of menacing tone that you often get from movies like this. But it also feels like you're inside a therapy session or like inside the mind of somebody who is trying to figure out how to use therapy to help themselves and also manipulate other people. Like, there's so it almost collapses on itself in that respect in the way that it's so entrenched in sort of therapy terminology and 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 you know the misuse of these you know, strategies that's so fun that's so timely for anybody that's been following that whole Jonah Hill right. old tweets with his ex that came up a lot so that's so timely that this this movie is falling this week yeah no I think that you're right and I think that it's probably uh accurate like it, you know there is something really um disturbing, distressing about the way that it winds through that kind of a, a theme. And then the, the resolution is the climax is wonderful. It's uh, it's a great culmination of everything that has come before it. But then the resolution is like, huh, I did not exactly expect that, but maybe I should have. So it's it's very clever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, you know, and it's a very it's one of those movies that has a COVID feel to it because it's a total a total of five humans yeah. in the entire thing. Yeah. But you don't feel it. You know, it's uh, it's a lovely movie. It's a weird one, but but a good one. Writer director is Lawrence Vanicelli with star Kyle Gallner, who we also was in the Scream, which we didn't mention. Oh, that's right. Scream. Yeah, a lot of people might recognize him there. And that is in theaters now called Mother May I. Let's go to Shudder next for a new documentary. In the wake of the blockbuster classic Jaws, a new subgenre was born. This new documentary explores the weird, wild, cinematic legacy of sharks on film and the world's undying fascination. It's shark exploitation. Hollywood has created a monster and given it the name shark exploitation. It's because of Jaws. Shark craze, which has gripped America. Suddenly, society developed this massive fear of sharks. Shark mania, movie that made a hundred million dollars and. Everybody wanted some of that. Our focus was creating a shark. We weren't thinking about what it was going to do to the future. Great whites, man eater, deep blue sea, shark puss, sharknado, the shallows, the meg. Sharks were everywhere. You watch shark movies, you watch shark documentaries. This creature is a Hollywood celebrity. The shark is a natural monster in the ocean. Why we are scared when we're standing in three feet of water at the shore? Sharks. It ignites something in us that makes us feel alive. Shark exploitation on Shudder. It's a fun idea. It is a fun idea. As you may have seen the ads next week, I believe next week, Shark Week what? starts. Jason Momoa is our new host. <laughs> So we love sharks because, yeah, sharks get a week, moms get a day. <laughs> That's how much we love sharks, and we love shark films. There's no end, and this is a, it's a fun dive. I mean, it really is, especially if you're a fan of really Jaws, of course, and is, isn't is everyone? It really does set up before Jaws and after Jaws. Sure. Because there were sharks on film before Jaws, and it, it's interesting how they were. There's a progression of how they were presented, even going back to a 30s film from Murnau that treated them as gods. Mm-hmm. 
up through the Bond films. You know, I want sharks with lasers on their heads. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, of course, Jaws. And then everything. Then everybody wanted a piece, not only of sharks, but then you had other kinds of Jaws films with mm-hmm. other animals, grizzly mm-hmm. and some things like that. So, And that continues to this day. So this, uh, this is a great history. It, uh, the director, first-time director, Stephen Scarlatta, rolls out a, a nice mix of film historians, uh, pop culture commentators, also some exasperated marine biologists, <laughs> which I love. Oh, yeah, that's the I best love part, that really. <laughs> because as they got more and more, I mean, I remember when Jaws came out and marine biologists at the time were going, um, you know... This is not really real. <laughs> well, it's only gotten ten times worse, and so oh, ten times they come in through <laughs> tornadoes now. <laughs> and they're the sharktopus. Have you seen the sharktopus? <laughs> yeah, and so they they uh, will go over some of the synopses of some of these ridiculous films, and then cut back to this marine biologist and go, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a, a fun part of it. And also, if you if you know at least even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know about what a lot of people think is the the worst line in the history of films from Shark Attack 3 Megalodon. It gets behind <laughs> the story of that line. And if you know, you know that line that I'm talking about. So there's some fun here and some great clips, so many great clips. A lot of times he'll stack them two and four at a time in split screens. So it's definitely a fun a fun trip uh, down the memory lane for the movies and, and TV as well and pop culture because once Jaws hit, all bets were off. Oh, sure. You know, Fonzie jumped the yep, shark. Yep. There was toys, everything. And it's uh, then there was, interestingly enough, I'd forgotten, there was a bit of a cooling off period with the sharks. And then D- Deep Blue Sea in 99 brought it back. And then you had things like the Sci-Fi Channel mm-hmm. and uh, the Asylum mm-hmm. um, production studio just going off, off, forgive me, the deep end with all <laughs> these movies. And it's uh, continued to today. And then you're reminded that in all the ridiculousness, uh, like Sharknado and things like that, there are still some good ones coming out. You know, movies like Open Water yeah. and The Shallows mm-hmm. find new ways to make solid shark films. So they're not going to go away anytime soon. And the film is a little rough around the edges. The The timeline sort of gets jumbled back and forth. Is, is he grouping them by era or is he grouping them by theme? Jumps around a little bit. And it seems uh, maybe a little long, but uh, still worthwhile. Uh, take that trip on Shudder, and it's called Shark Sharksploitation. And one more on VOD horror film. An Anglo-American indie rock band ends up stranded in the desolate city of Epicuan. Their conflicts between themselves and their bad luck are quickly forgotten when they begin to discover the bloody hell that awaits them. It's called what's the It's called What the Waters Left Behind, colon, Scars. <laughs> a sequel to a movie boy i'm gonna say it's like 14 years old called yeah. what the water's left behind and it's set in an actual like the remains of a town that was flooded and that uh, years later when the water receded that so they shot a film there right brilliant idea mm-hmm. um and this one just sort of picks up from where the last one left off um and it's not good the last one wasn't good this one isn't good they're not slasher films they're more Along the lines of uh, sort of the 70s savage cinema, right? Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Hills Have Eyes. You know, um, but they don't do it very well. And so if you you tire of a a grim torture scene or a rape scene, you're going to tire of this movie in like 10 minutes. I mean, they just... 
you know, there's nothing sort of novel or interesting or new about the way they dispatch people. They just keep going back to the same thing again and again and again, which is unfortunate. The filmmakers actually have kind of a a niche in sort of a neo giallo type film. Yeah, the writer is uh, Camilo Zaforo, and the director is Nicholas Onetti. And this was reviewed at MadWolf.com by the Schlocketeer, Daniel Baldwin. That's right. Uh, who went back? He had forgotten about the original. He went back and watched he did. the first one he as did. well to get a full full scope. And yeah, it's a lot of pieces that he seemed to to say that are built is built on better films yeah. that you'll recognize pieces of better films here. And it's pretty repetitive. And uh, you can read his full review at MadWolf.com, and that is on VOD now called "What the Waters Left Behind: Scars." And speaking of the Schlocketeer, let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Checking back into the lobby, Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer, for the latest studio news and notes that don't have to do with Barbenheimer, or maybe they do. What do you got? (laughs) Well, if you missed it in theaters, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, is now available on premium VOD. And there's an in-name-only sequel to The River Wild, simply titled River Wild, um, coming to Netflix, VOD, and Blu-ray on August 1st that stars Adam Brody and Leighton Meester. Wow, that was a while ago. Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) And it's not the only uh, random uh, franchise expansion that I'll have for you today, but we'll get to that. Okay. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 will premiere on Disney Plus on August 2nd. So if you haven't taken the uh, $25 dive on the premium VOD, <laughs> you don't have too much longer to wait. And Saban Films is releasing a dark comedy called Nandor, Fodor, and the Talking Mongoose in theaters on September 1st. That stars Simon Pegg, Minnie Driver, and Christopher Lloyd. Hmm. Huh. Shudder has a supernatural horror flick called Perpetrator, um, which is the latest film from Knives and Skin director Jennifer Reeder that's hitting their service on September 1st. Columbus's own Jennifer Reeder, like our great jewel of filmmaking. I loved the last movie so much. I can't tell you how excited we are to see uh, Perpetrator. Uh, The trailer's online and it looks good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Lionsgate has moved up the theatrical release of Saw X by almost a month to September 29th. Um, it's got Tobin Bell back in the lead, and it's set between the events of one and two. So if you haven't caught up or haven't been keeping up with the series to date, you really don't have to go back and catch them all yet. So that's always a plus. It is. <laughs> plus, speaking of Barbenheimer, since Lionsgate moved it up a month, it now drops on the same day as the new Paw Patrol movie, and there is already a Saw Patrol movement online. So. <laughs> that might be the next big thing. <laughs> Saw Patrol. Oh my. <laughs> oh, maybe they they're going to try to to do this from now on, get to recreate these these pairings of movies. I don't know if they're going <laughs> to they're going to recreate Barbenheimer, but we'll see. You never know. They'll certainly try. Um, on October 6th, Paramount Plus will premiere Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, which is a 1969 set prequel to the 2019 remake, and it stars Henry Thomas, Samantha Mathis, David Duchovny, and Pam Greer. So that's a lineup for you. That is. And Alexander Payne's The Holdovers will have a limited theatrical release on October 27th, followed by a wide release on November 10th. And that's his reteaming with Paul Giamatti. Yeah, I've oh, seen cool. the images and trailers for it. And yeah, it looks like something I want to see. Mm-hmm. 
moving on to another acclaimed filmmaker, uh, Netflix has a December 1st premiere set for Todd Haynes' new film, May, December. Wow. And then on, then uh, switching gears for Netflix on December 15th, there will be the premiere of Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. <laughs> also, wow. <laughs> and the last thing I've got for you is Neon will release Michael Mann's Ferrari in theaters on December 25th. And that stars Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, Shailene Woodley, Patrick Dempsey, Sarah Gadon, and Jack O'Connell. A new Michael Mann movie at oh, the end of the year. Nice. nice. Okay. We can always catch up with Daniel for the latest news and notes. Catch him on the socials at the Schlocketeer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, looking ahead to next week. Well, we do have a big studio release. One we, yeah, we're excited to see. The new version of Disney's The Haunted Mansion. This has been done now a few times, anyway. This will be the third one. Third Haunted Mansion. Uh, and But uh, but uh, Justin Seaman, who did uh, Dear White People, for right. example, he's the filmmaker. Yeah, like that. Uh, so he's great. The whole cast looks great. This this I had this book when I was a little kid, one of those books on tape. I listened to it every day. It was my favorite book for years. I could still quote it. And, of course, as you know, love the ride. So I'm very excited <laughs> yeah, about this. Yeah, definitely. And new A24 horror flick, so that makes us excited. Talk to Me is out next week. And Nicolas Cage plays Satan, Sympathy for the Devil. I'm in. So I know. It's like it's a, it's a three-way tie for the one we're most excited to see. <laughs> uh, one called Earth Mama. A Fire. The Final Cut. Lakota Nation versus the USA. And Shrapnel. So that's all next week. But you know, this week it's all about the Barbenheimer. What do you think? One of them, both of them? Yes, please. We keep the conversation going uh, all the time on our Twitter page. You can find it at Mad Wolf, also on Facebook and Instagram and threads. It's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other podcast, horror movie only podcast called Fright Club. That's all there for you at madwolf.com. So keep in touch. Hope you enjoy the just the pure cinematic joy of Barbenheimer weekend. Drink it in. <laughs> Drink it in and remember how much fun it is to go back to the movies. Love to see what's happening this weekend. Keep in touch. Until next week, have a great week. Enjoy the movies. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>